Good morning, everyone. Happy Memorial Day weekend. This is the unofficial, official beginning of summer, kind of. Feels that way? Uh, typically, we'll fire up our grills this weekend for good. We'll plant the gardens. We'll all go to Frog Pond and get our, our plant materials and baby chickens or whatever the case may be. Um, but ultimately, this weekend... We set aside some time as a country, and we thank God for those who have paid for our freedom with their lives. And so today, I'd like us to just take a moment and have a moment of silence and then a moment of thanksgiving to God for the freedom that we enjoy. So would you bow with me, and if you're watching us virtually, would you bow with us as we pray? Father, we want to thank you today for the freedom that we enjoy, that was paid for by brave men and women. Some of them were family members, relatives of us. Others were heroes that we don't even know their name. And yet we thank you that they paid the ultimate price for our freedom. God, in just a few years, our nation celebrates 250 years of freedom. And while our nation is far from perfect, we are grateful that you have placed us here in this nation for such a time as this. And God, we would be remiss if we ignored your son, the one who paid for our spiritual freedom with his own blood. Thank you for him as well. We are grateful people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone who's grateful said, amen. 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 All right. So let me just begin by showing you something I've shown you before. Who remembers what this is? No one. Okay, cool. So I'll tell you for the first time. This is my battery tester, and I keep this handy at my home because guess what goes bad often at my house? Um, it seems like we go through batteries as quickly as I go through Skittles. And so I constantly am getting toys from the kids that require me to test the batteries. And I want to make sure that the battery is really dead before I throw it out because I don't own stock in Duracell or Energizer. And as much as I like those companies, I would rather fix the toy if the toy just needs fixing. So I'll test the battery. And oftentimes, I'll find out that the battery is actually good. It's the toy that's defective. Uh, and so we'll work on that with the kids. But this little device wasn't very expensive, but it's pretty accurate to tell me if the battery is good or bad. And it got me thinking as I was studying this passage, wouldn't it be cool if there was a little simple Christianity detector? Someone's <laughs> <was> like, no. <laughs> Would you use it? You're like, I sure would on my spouse, or maybe on my kids, or coworker, or the person sitting next to me. Some of you would use it on yourself, right? Spiritual insecurity is a very real thing. And I think most of us that call ourselves Christians at one time or another, we've questioned our salvation. Am I really in? Am I really going to heaven? Should I do something over again? Anyone else been there? I think that's a real common situation to be in as a Christian. And so today we're going to find out that there actually is a Christianity detector. There's a faith detector. It's very foolproof. It's actually almost as foolproof as this thing here. 
for batteries, and it was given to us by one of Jesus' closest friends. This very close friend of Jesus, he was in Jesus' inner circle. Jesus had a circle of 120, 12, and then three. He was in Jesus' third ring circle of three. He was uh, authored, he authored five of the books in our New Testament. And it's one of his letters, one of his books that we're studying as we finish springtime. And it's the book of 1 John. So if you would turn there with me today, we're going to look at a Christianity detector that's pretty helpful and pretty foolproof. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 2 of 1 John. And we are going to continue with this series, I Am a Child of God. And this is a series that's meant to help us with our identity. Because identity issues are real and they're widespread and they're common inside and outside of the church. And this is a series that's supposed to help us understand our identity, especially when we're struggling to understand who we really are. So verse 3 is where we pick up today. And it says this. It says, we know that we have come to know him if we, what? Keep his commands. Okay, we'll just, we'll just pause. We'll let that sink in for a minute because John's just given us the tester. Let's, let's read a little more of his explanation. He says, whoever says, I know him, I know Jesus, but does not do what he commands is a... You guys are all kind of quiet today. Is it just me? Okay. Is a... Liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone, what's the next word? Obey. <whistles> Circle, highlight, star, that word. If anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. And this is how we know we are in him. This is how we know we are in him. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to second guess. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must do what? It's that simple. Okay, so let's talk about this before we read further. Think about it this way. How many of you are dog owners? Dog owners? Okay. Are you proud of that fact? Just for fun, how many of you are cat owners? Are you proud of that fact? Wow, the enthusiasm gap was tremendous. Interesting. Okay, sorry, it's not, I'm not slamming cats. I didn't mean to. But, okay, if you're a dog owner, because this just illustration doesn't work with cats, because a cat you don't really own, it owns you. But dog owners, <laughs> dog owners, uh, there's a way to tell what dog is connected to what owner. And it's really simple. The dog responds to the master's call. When a master whistles or calls or snaps, a dog has a response with its ears and its tail. And if it's an obedient dog, with its legs too. You've noticed this, right? You, can, you could talk to a dog if you're not its owner. It's probably not going to respond to you. But if you're its owner, that dog is going to have a response. And in a similar way, you can identify a follower of Jesus by how he or she responds to the master's commands. 
When people are unsure of their salvation, they're questioning their salvation, they're looking for assurance of salvation, what we by default have done in the church is we ask them, well, was there a time and a place where you asked Jesus into your heart? And we'll try to jog their memory, we'll go back, did you pray the prayer? And we'll try to convince them that they're going to heaven and they're a child of God based on that. But Jesus' close friend, John, argues that there's a better way, a more foolproof way, to be certain of your salvation than going back to an event that you might not even remember and you might not even be convinced you did it right. In fact, I've talked to people when I've asked them if they're a Christian. Well, yeah, I asked Jesus into my life when I was 4, 8, 12, 16, 22. (laughs) So if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, we're going to put your faith into this tester today and I'm going to do mine as well. And, and ideally, we're going to do it in John's tester because Jesus, John just says, if you claim to have faith and yet you don't live in obedience to Jesus, what does he say about you? You're a liar. That's kind of blunt. But it's funny, battery testers I found are very blunt. They really aren't going to read. When I put that battery in, it's not going to go green just because it doesn't want to hurt the battery's feelings. It's just going to truly tell me where the battery's at. And this faith tester is much the same way. It's not going to really respect my feelings. It's just going to kind of tell me where my faith is at. Is my faith real or not? Genuine or fake? Strong or weak? This tester is just going to kind of reveal that. And the challenge is, when it comes to batteries, there's really not a lot of ways to tell from the outside if they're good or bad. The other day I was looking through my batteries and I actually found one that had like greenish gunk all over it. What did I know instantly about the battery? Yeah, that was bad. It exploded. But most batteries, there's no external way to tell if it's good or bad. Same is true for faith. There's not really a lot of external ways or any external ways to tell. You can't tell if someone's faith is real or genuine by their hairstyle, by their facial hair, by their clothing, by, by much of anything externally. So this tester's got to reach beyond the externals to something internal. Your, your level of intelligence, your level of good looks, your level of whatever the case may be, ability to communicate, has nothing to do with your level of faith and if it's true or not. So John here gives us right away in this little passage, this little paragraph, he gives us a pretty foolproof way to know if our faith is real or not. Talk is cheap. Real faith obeys. Jesus followers. Now I'm going to say something pretty extreme here. Real Jesus followers follow Jesus. I know this is shocking. This is actually controversial. To actually teach this, I could be kicked out of some churches. Now, we're a Bible church, so I don't think I'll be kicked out here. But this is a fairly shocking concept. But Jesus, one of his closest friends, taught it. Real Jesus followers follow Jesus. I can call myself whatever I want. But the proof is in my level of obedience. And like a dog responds to his master's commands, 
my response to the master's commands proves if he's my master or if he's not. All right, so let's keep going. Verse 7, he's going to explain this more. He said, dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. And he's just letting them know, look, this tester isn't a new thing. I'm not dropping on you something that's new. I'm not making this up. This wasn't my idea that I had one night after I ate some spicy food and couldn't sleep and I had a eureka. This is something that has been around as long as faith has been around. As long as faith has been around, faith has been proven by obedience. That's how faith demonstrates itself, reveals itself is through obedience, through response to the author of faith. So John's like, this is nothing new. Verse 8, yet I am writing you a new command. He's like, maybe for you it is new. Its truth is seen in, in him, in Jesus, and in you, because the darkness is passing, and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in what? The darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness because they do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Okay, take a moment here and let's look at what he's just dropped into the conversation. He's dropped this contrast as he's talking about obedience, he's dropping a contrast between love and hate. And when you see the word hate there, you realize that this is a word that's being used more than ever in our culture. Have you heard hate lately? Now, now hate is not just used generally. Hate is more than ever used as a direct accusation to who? Jesus followers, Christians. It is quite common, and just buckle up, it's going to become much more common as we become more of a post-Christian nation, to hear this word hate against us. We are considered haters because of our views about life, marriage, sex, race, equality, parenting, fill in the blank. And the accusation of hate isn't really a precise accusation. It's more of a catch-all accusation that says, look, you're outside of the mainstream, and so we're going to shame you for that. Believing that God creates humans as either male or female, isn't hate, it's truth. And is perhaps the most helpful truth that someone studying with identity issues can hear. Believing that God knits babies together in their mother's womb and creates them in the image of God is not hate, it's truth. And is maybe the most helpful truth someone struggling with an unwanted pregnancy can hear. Believing that God created sex as a sacred gift reserved for married couples, it's not hate. It's truth. And is maybe the kindest, most helpful truth for someone struggling with lust to hear. Believing that God created every human being equal and part of one human race is not hate. It's truth. As maybe the most helpful and kind truth for someone who's struggling with racism to hear. So when that accusation of hate is lobbed at you, just understand that it may be 
lobbed at you because there's a dislike or a hatred for your master. Don't take it personally. Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you. And so we can kind of expect that this idea of hate is going to be an accusation that's continually lobbed at us, and there will be consequences and ramifications for us as being people that the world looks at and say, you're haters because of your view. Now listen, we're not going to be able to deny our views. We're not going to be able to deny the word of God. If we do, shame on us. But when we're called haters, there never better be an accusation of hate that sticks towards us when it comes to how we treat people. Because hate and disrespect towards other people has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? And it has no place in the Christian home. And the ultimate test for how we love each other, that's the contrast here, love and hate, the ultimate test is how we treat each other. And so I think God likes to give us opportunities to put that into practice. You know, one of the opportunities he's given us to put that into practice today is the new policy we had to unveil regarding masks and vaccines and distancing. What a great way for us to demonstrate our love for each other. You're like, no, it's not. It's a great way to get in a new fight. But listen, when we talk about being a church that's going to operate on an honor system that means we respect other people with no disrespect, with no unkindness, that shouldn't need to be a policy in the church. That should be who we are. Now, I'm not worked up because of you or me. I'm just worked up because I think the church in America is failing so much to demonstrate the love and the kindness and the respect of our Savior. And I think if the church in America is getting put in the tester right now, I think in many ways we keep failing. And so I just think God has a higher standard for how I treat other people than the way I would naturally do it, than the way I would normally do it. The way I'm supposed to treat other people is with respect and kindness and love with no strings attached. The world only knows how to respect people who agree with them. Christians are called to respect people, period. Because we are made in the image of God, there is one human race, and we are called to love and respect not just our brother and sister in Christ, but even those outside of the church. And so I think God just keeps giving us tests to do this. Now, he introduces this word hate, and you may have a preconceived idea of what hate is. And, and, and I think the challenge for us is there's so many different ideas about hate. I think the typical concept of hate is that hate kind of looks like this. Okay? That's a really flawed definition of hate. That's based on the contrast of Hollywood love. Hollywood love is this out of control feeling that you fall into. And so a hatred that's a contrast to that is sure, it's this out of control emotion of disgust or rage towards someone else. Okay, so that's the contrast for Hollywood love and Hollywood hate. But biblical love and hate is far different. The word here for love is not the out-of-control romantic love. In fact, in, in the Greek language, there were three key words for love. The first was eros. Does anyone know what eros love is? 
Look at your spouse and bat your eyes at them. That's eros, okay? Then you've got phileo. Phileo love was family love or brotherly love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Not, but it was supposed to be, okay? So phileo is brotherly love, brotherly kindness. Eros is uh, romantic love. The third type of love, agape, this is not a love of the heart. This is not a love of emotion. It's not a love of feeling. It's a love of the mind. It's a choice. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, how warm and fuzzy do you think he felt? He was there operating in agape love. He had just been rejected by his own people. He had just been tortured. He was feeling pain and rejection, and he chose agape. This kind of love, agape, is a higher love that 1 Corinthians 13 describes as patient and kind, always forgiving, never giving up. That's the kind of love God calls us to. It's this willful choice to be kind and patient to others. And the opposite of that is not this... The opposite of that is just selfishness. The opposite of that kind of agape perfect love is a selfishness that says, I matter more than you. My views matter more than you. And so right now as a nation, as we've done a really good job of being polarized between donkeys and elephants, blue and red, we as Christians get to demonstrate what it looks like to love each other with no strings attached. And this is what God wants for us. And there's no better demonstration of Christianity, of real faith, than people who know how to love each other well. Right before Jesus was arrested and died, he did this famous prayer, John 17, and he prays, Father, let them be one as we are one. May all men know that they are my disciples by the way that they love each other. The way that Jesus is one with the Father, this loving relationship is the same type of relationship he wants for you and me. And so John says this is the test. How do you treat, how do you treat another brother or sister in the faith? This is a great test of your faith. And so that's pretty powerful as I think of that for myself. Okay. Am I following Jesus in the way that I talk about other Christians, in the way that I treat other Christians, in the way that I deal with other Christians? Am I genuinely following Jesus in that way? In fact, could someone look at the way I treat other Christians and there be enough evidence to convict me of being a Jesus follower? He keeps going and he writes this in verse 12. John gets a little bit relational with his with his audience, and ultimately this is a general letter, so he's writing even to us today. There wasn't a specific church John was writing to. Verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, those of you who are more mature in your faith, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. 
I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who's from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So what John's doing is he's saying, listen, I know who you are. You are children of God. And he doesn't just say, I know who you are. He's reminding us who we are. Whether you're a mature Christian or a new Christian, John says, remember who you are. And you remember who you are by remembering whose you are. You are a child of God. Remember who you are. And if you remember who you are, John's about to tell us, Here's what's going to happen to you as your love for God grows deeper, as your love for God matures. There's another love that's going to get less. There's another love that's going to decrease. And here it is in verse 15. Do not love. Did you ever think God would tell you not to love something? He does. Do not love. What's he say not to love? The world. The world. Or anything in the world. You're like, what a relief. I hate my job. That's in the world. I hate my school. That's in the world. Not quite. He's talking about the world and the system of the world. He'll get to that in a minute. But he says, don't love the world. Love is supposed to mark the follower of Jesus, and it's supposed to be demonstrated by how followers of Jesus treat other followers of Jesus. But something you got to watch out for when it comes to love is that you're not loving the world or anything in the world. If you love the world, love for the Father is not in them. Put the battery in the tester and a needle doesn't move. This is a really blunt indicator. If I love the things in the world, there's something wrong with my love. Now some of you may be thinking, wait a minute, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Am I missing something here? Well, what God loves was people. Look at verse 16. He describes the world. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires, what do they do? They pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. I love the paraphrase of the message, the last few verses we read. Let me read this to you. Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the Father. I just was reading a part of a book last night that said, I think 26% of young people believe they'll be famous by the time they hit 25 years old. Just please stop laughing, they might be famous. You don't know. But there is, this, there is this love for ourselves in the world. There's this love for our future. There's this love for what I can do or be or produce. And he, John here says, listen, this kind of love, it just isolates you from him. 
you from Jesus. The world and all it's wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. Everything in the world is going to pass away. It's going to fade. Politics is going to fade away. Diseases are going to fade away. Human cures are going to fade away. Disagreements and careers and mountains and oceans and lusts and pride, it's all going to end. And if those things are an object of your love, they're a pretty temporary love. But what does last forever? Jesus' followers. Jesus' followers will last forever. He says in verse 17, whoever does the will of God lives forever. Our lives are to be marked by a very unique kind of love. A love that is so strong towards other people and a love that is so weak for the things this world offers us. This is why temptations should be easier for us to overcome the longer we follow Jesus. Because every temptation is just a worm on a hook. And the only reason the fish bites it is because they like worms. And so the only reason I bite temptation is because I like what Satan is offering me or I like what the world is offering me. And if I can get to a point where I'm loving God more and loving the world less, that worm just looks like a nasty bleeding worm. And it doesn't look like something that's appealing to me. And so the more my faith grows, the more it matures, I'm going to be able to tell that my faith is real because the things the world throws at me and the temptations of Satan are less and less attractive to me. In fact, maybe instead of me wanting some of those things, I become repulsed by some of those things. Does anyone understand what I'm talking about? As you've grown in your faith, there are things you used to enjoy doing, or you used to like doing, and now you can't do them without feeling guilty. There are things you used to talk about, and now you can't even talk about them without feeling like, ah, I feel kind of dirty after I talk about those things or read those things. Or There's this growing love in us for God, and there's this decreasing love in us for the things of this world. And it's like it's an addiction that's slowly dying as God turns our attention to him and turns our love to each other. It's this beautiful picture of the gospel. This series is all about our identity as children of God. Did you know it is impossible to love Jesus and hate his church? It is impossible to love Jesus and hate his followers. That's the kind of teaching that John gives us here. Now, real quick, I got to deal with an objection that maybe you're having as you hear about this faith tester. You might be thinking, okay, is John teaching that salvation is something that you earn by your obedience? Has anyone ever tried that? You tried to get to heaven by doing good things. And it's like 
a treadmill that you just can't get off. Listen, you can come to Berean so long that we put your name on a seat. Maybe. I don't know if we do that. I guess we don't. But you could, you could go to a church long enough, they put your name on a seat. You could get baptized so often, the polywogs know your social security number. You could, <laughs> you could read the Bible until you know it by heart, and it wouldn't buy you one day in heaven. Not one day. Jesus paid the only payment for you to get into heaven. You can't access heaven by your obedience. You can only access it by faith. So how does obedience work then, this obedience tester? Much like a battery tester works. The tester is passive. When I put a battery in here, I know this tester has no ability to make this battery good or to make this battery bad. I've never hooked it up and been, oh, the battery's dead. The tester just killed it. Or, oh, the battery's good. Thank you, tester, for making the battery good. It didn't do anything. It just revealed the condition of the battery. The obedience tester is the same way. You put your life in it. You check your level of obedience, and all it's doing is it's passively revealing the condition of your faith. Real faith obeys. Real faith is unable to continue to live a life of disobedience. You can tell a lot by your fruit. Let me put it this way. If Jesus is your root, healthy obedience will be your fruit. Jesus said a a, a stream that's good can't produce bad water. And a stream that's bad can't produce good water. He said a tree that has bad roots can't produce good fruit. And a tree that has good roots can't produce bad fruit. And so if your root is Jesus Christ, you know what your life's going to produce? The fruit of obedience. And that obedience is not what's getting you into heaven. It's just this external indicator that your faith is real. I actually don't remember a lot about the day I gave my life to Jesus. I was four years old. It doesn't matter what I remember or don't remember. It doesn't matter if I did it all right or not when I was four. What matters is that I should be able to take my life and put it in this tester and say, okay, my life is being marked by a growing obedience. And my love for Jesus is growing. And my love for other followers of Jesus is growing. And my love and attraction to the world is slowly fading. My addiction to the world is fading. So when we talk about assurance of salvation, some of you understand and you've probably had someone talk to you before about, okay, well, when did you get saved and did you do it right and all that? And you may be looking at this saying, well, how does this work then? If, if I'm questioning my assurance of salvation, if I'm questioning if I'm going to heaven, then how does this genuinely work? How can I just say, well, I got to look at my life and if my good works outweigh my bad works? Is that really? No. No, that's not at all how it works. It works very different from that. The way this works is to say, okay, is my love for Jesus genuine? And if it is, I'll be demonstrating that with the way that I obey him. 
Am I? So here's the thing. When I have gotten in my life where I have questioned my salvation, the last thing I needed someone to do was to say, Justin, tell me when you accepted Jesus, and, and I'll try to convince you that you're going to heaven. That's not what I needed. Do you know why I, at times, have questioned my salvation? Because I had a sin issue that I wasn't dealing with. And when I have sin issues that I don't deal with, it creates this block between me and God. And you know what I feel? When I, when I have a block between me and God, I feel insecurity about my faith. And I should. Like that is God's loving way of saying, Justin, there's an issue. Deal with the issue. And it's amazing to me, when I deal with my sin issue, that wall gets lifted and my insecurity evaporates. So this morning, what I would love to say for you, if you're in any way questioning your faith, is not to convince you that at one time or another you did the right thing and said a right prayer or something like that. It wouldn't be to do that for you because I don't want to convince you of something that may not be true. I don't want to put a Band-Aid over an infection and say it's all good. The bigger question is, if you're a follower of Jesus or you identify as a follower of Jesus, are you right with God? Or is there a sin issue? Maybe it's how you're treating another Christian. Maybe it's something you're doing that's wrong and you're doing it habitually. There's where you can put your focus and say, okay, God, I need to get this right and watch what happens when you get that right. The insecurities that you have, you may find that they leave. The struggle that you're feeling about your faith, you may find that it's gone. You may find that all of a sudden you're reconnected because that wall, that sin that's separating you from God lifts and you're close once again to him. Instead of convincing yourself, I'm all good, I'm going to heaven, I'm fine. It's a time to do an evaluation or an audit Say, God, I've got a sin issue. You know I've got a sin issue. Help me with this. Forgive me of this. This guy, John, who's writing this stuff, is not trying to say anything revolutionary or even anything new. He's just trying to reveal how faith works. Real faith acts. Talk is cheap. Real Jesus followers follow Jesus. Real Jesus followers follow Jesus. Oh, I got something I got to tell you. Real Jesus followers follow Jesus. And this isn't for me to point at you. This isn't for you to point at them. This is for me to say to myself, okay, Justin, if I identify as a Jesus follower, am I following Jesus? And if there's an area of my life where I'm following Justin, Houston, we've got a problem. Real Jesus followers follow Jesus. In what area of my life am I not surrendered to my master? In what area of my life is God saying, hey, Justin, trying to get my attention, and I'm like the dog, my ears are pricked, my tail's moving, I hear him, but I'm going the other direction. He's like, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Am I your master? Am I your master? Are you a Jesus follower? Then what are you doing not following? 
Don't walk the other way and say, I'm good. You're my master, but I'm going this way. Check your life. Check the direction of your legs and go back towards your master. And the identity struggle you may have, the, the insecurity you may have about Jesus and your faith, it may evaporate when you go back 100% to following Jesus. It, it's not rocket scientist stuff. John, one of the closest friends of Jesus, struggled with this himself, and that's why he can write this so honestly. See, he fell away from Jesus like almost everyone did. And he learned that if Jesus is going to be your master, then you need to follow him. And although this is kind of blunt truth from John, I think it's the most helpful, kind thing that he could give me and you. So would you bow with me this morning? Maybe today you're, you're a guest with us or you're just kicking the tires of this Jesus thing. And if that's you, listen, I'm really glad that you're here or watching us maybe online. And, and maybe you're not ready to believe in Jesus yet. You're not ready to be one of those Jesus followers that we've talked about. I get it and I, I respect you and I pray that one day, one day you'll be there. But today, maybe that's you and, and Jesus is working on your heart and he's He's helping you to handle the truth we've talked about today with belief. And he's given you the faith to believe in Jesus. If, if that's you and you're, you're able to put your faith in Jesus and make him your master today, we want to welcome you to the family of God. There's no greater joy than to welcome another member into God's family. We're just a bunch of broken people who have been forgiven by Jesus and now we're learning how to do this thing of walking by faith and living in obedience. All of us here are learning how to do it every day and we're not there yet. And let me tell you, my friend, there's, there's always room for another lost person who's just finding their way back to God. My friend, if you're here and you do believe, I just pray for you as I pray for myself that your fruit matches your root. I pray that God matures your faith and my faith and helps us to grow in obedience. And I pray that love marks your attitudes and your actions and your words. And I'm going to pray this for myself too because you're not on this journey alone. We're on this together. And we fail, I fail constantly. But I am so challenged by Jesus' friend, John, to be one of those Jesus followers who actually follows Jesus. Father, thank you for this pretty blunt truth that John gives us today. Thank you that he doesn't mince words. Thank you that he calls us out from complacency, from hypocrisy, from fake faith and forces us to wrestle with the genuineness of our belief in you. God, teach us how to be followers who follow. Teach us how to be Christians who reflect Christ. Thank you for forgiving us when we fail. God, decrease our love and attraction for the things of this world and increase our love for you. 
And may even today in the way that we treat each other be a demonstration of this unconditional love that you've put in our hearts. Thank you that we get to call ourselves children of God. In Jesus' name, amen.